0: Uh, the text this morning, we're continuing in Mark. Uh, this, is, this is where we're going to take a turn now, and instead of doing like half verses at a time, uh, it, the stories actually get much bigger. Uh, once you get through the introductory material, um, the stories uh, are, are much longer in breadth. And so we're going to, suddenly it's taken us a long time to sort of get through the first 13 verses, but, but now it's actually we're going to go much quicker. It's interesting how Mark uh, turns the book in this way. Uh, The text this morning um, is actually verses 16 through 20, but I'm going to back up to verse 14 just just to give us some context. It's always good. We're in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 14. This is what we read. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for um, calling us out of the world into this congregation. Indeed, you have cast your net wide and far, and and you have drawn us in. And we pray, Lord, that um, as we come here, that you would not be um, gentle with us, Father, that you would be compassionate, but that you would be hard on our sin and on our idols, that you would comfort us the way that we need and convict us the way that we need, that you would um, instruct us through your word how to be more like Christ, how to honor him and glorify him and depend upon him more and more. We thank you for your son, and we thank you for your word uh, that that teaches us all about him. We thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding. And we pray that you would give us that understanding now. And amen. Now, it's fascinating, as usual. Mark doesn't explain much. Um, what was John arrested for? Uh, what what? prison was he put into how long is this after everything else that has already occurred jesus came into galilee where did he come from right once you start once you start asking questions about the things mark leaves out it's amazing how much he leaves out but what he puts in what he puts in is fascinating and and why he puts that in and not something else is itself fascinating um so often, like I said last week, you know, we put all all the stories of Jesus and in, in the, the call of all of these disciples. We just we take all the gospels and we mash it all together, and, and that's good and right in its way to learn the whole story as far as it's recorded. But when you just get down into the single text of Mark, it's it, it's it's amazing. It's amazing how much he gets out of so little, and how much he wants you to ask the questions. Right? What is going on? Uh, in, in this text, who are these guys who just get up and walk away because someone told them to? If I'm walking down the street and I see a guy outside of a gas station and I say, hey, follow me, um, if he says anything at all, it's not something I can say in front of these ladies and children. <laughs> right? People don't typically respond to this uh, th- this way. Like I, I think it's fascinating. I was recently told by a police officer to, to you no, know, don't go that way, go this way, which was right and good, but even him telling me to do that with the authority he automatically has, there was right, I don't like to be told what to do. I thought it was kind of a funny reaction, like I was a little kid or something, right? When people just say, Hey, don't walk there, walk here. Most people don't just get up and, and say, All right, let's let's do this. Well, I mean these they don't even say anything. They just get up and follow. Most people don't react this way. Who are these people? I have as many questions about the guys that would do this, right? I, I mean, see you dad, I gotta go. And they just leave dad there. They leave a servant there. They leave nets there. Nets are very expensive things. You don't, I mean, they're hard to come by. Uh, again, in this scenario, you, I wouldn't just walk up to someone outside of their sports car and be like, hey, leave, come, follow me. And they just leave their Porsche sitting there with the keys in it. I mean, once you put it into a modern context, it's very bizarre. Who are these guys? Who is the, who is Jesus? And, um, I think one of the, the funniest things is, is this, we think that this whole thing is kind of just, he, he's making a joke. Oh, look, fishermen, come, and let, I'll make you fishers of men. And it's, ha, ha, ha. And we think that whole phrase is just because he's being funny. And he is being funny. Um, Jesus has a fantastic sense of humor. Um, but, but there's much more going on. Uh, to a Jewish audience, that that phrase would have been bizarre in, in a totally different way. They would have thought there was something funny about it, but it wouldn't have been laugh-out-loud funny like we find it. They, they would have, why? Are, what? Fishers of men? How, given the context of that from the prophetic tradition, which I'm going to explain, how, how in the world are you, why are you doing it with these nobodies here on the Sea of Galilee? So I, I just want to stop and just point out, all this contextual stuff here is is, is amazing. Uh, I cannot get enough of how Mark, as a writer, someone who loves words, how he did what he did here is just phenomenal. Jesus declares the coming of the kingdom of God and calls all men to repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come, therefore repent and believe the gospel. Immediately, Jesus goes out and speaks and acts with God's authority. He's not asking anyone permission. He's not checking with anyone. He didn't ask these fellows' fathers, if, right, can these guys come with me? He goes out and he says, the kingdom of God is here, and starts issuing orders, because he's the king. Unlike the prophets who called people to turn back to God, Jesus commands people to follow him. Every other prophet up to this point, it says, hey, follow God. Jesus says, follow me. It's a, it's a very different message, and, and you can see why the scribes and the Pharisees have a problem with it. Who, who are you, Right? You're not a prophet. Prophets tell people to turn to God. You're telling us to turn to you. Who? Where do you get off giving us an order like that? What Jesus is doing is very, very unusual. He's taking the initiative to call his own disciples. That's not how it worked. Uh, not much has changed. Nothing's new under the sun. Back then, if you wanted to get a job with one of the top teachers, it, just like if you want to go to University of Washington, you actually have to apply. Uh, you have to Take an examination. You have to prove that you're capable of learning the things that, 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 that teacher is going to teach you. It's very, it's, it's very hard to get into the best schools then, just like it is now. So on top of everything else, here Jesus is not taking applications. He's not s- setting up shop somewhere and, and, and putting out the word and then pe- having people come to him. He's going out and doing, and doing the, um, calling to himself. And this is um, strange. This is strange. When Jesus says, follow me, it's interesting because uh, there is a literal sense to it. When he says, follow me, he, it's not just a, a metaphor. Aristotle had started his own school in Athens called Lyceum. Now, Aristotle is uh, what we call a peripatetic philosopher. The word peripatetic means give, given to walking. So he would walk around, and as he walked around, he would lecture. And everyone who was a student was supposed to memorize everything that he said. This is an old way of teaching. Um, most people aren't fans of the West Wing. Uh, that's Part of that show is everyone is always walking while they're having meetings. It's, kinda, it's like everyone is walking really fast to everywhere else in the show. And the author of the show was trying to make them seem like philosophers. Right? This is the metaphor. Because this is what philosophers are like. If you think of a philosopher, a Western philosopher, he's, he's a guy wearing robes, walking around a beautiful orchard, saying profound things, and everyone around him is just fawning over his words. Now, Jesus is, Jesus is making everything new. He's, he's not like most rabbis with disciples, and he's not like most Greek teachers with, with disciples. He comes and he kind of takes parts of both ways of discipling people and, and, and puts them together and then adds a bunch of stuff. His own way of doing it. Because he doesn't just mean follow me and, and memorize what I say. He says, follow me and do what I do. The following here is imitative. It's not just, hey, walk behind me and listen. It's do the things that I'm doing. Right? It's not just about what I say, it's what I do. When I'm talking to sinners, when I'm talking to scribes, when I'm, I'm talking to crowds, listen to what I'm saying, but watch how I'm talking to them. How am I acting? How am I reacting? Here comes a, a centurion. How do I react to him? How do I treat this person? The Syrio-Phoenician woman who he calls a dog, right, in the end, that, that itself turns out to be somewhat of a joke because he, he's actually seeing how humble she really is. Usually when you call a woman a dog, that's kind of the end of the conversation. <laughs> but Jesus finds out how humble that woman really is. Now, now, how come nobody stops him and says, how dare you talk to her that way? Right? He knows what he's doing. And they need to figure out what he's doing because they're supposed to do it too. The other thing is, when you got a job as a disciple, you were considered like a house servant. This is, I I never under, I I always thought, anyway, that Jesus orders all these people around because, because he's God. Go and find me a donkey and bring it here. Won't go steal me a donkey. Is actually what he tells the guy to do. And, and, and I thought, okay, well, he's the king of the world and so he tells people what to do. Well, no, it turns out there is disciples. So when he's hungry, he says, hey, disciple, go get me a fish and a loaf. And they do it. It's part of their job, which is what makes the foot washing thing so crazy. They're supposed to wash his feet. That's what servants do in this world because you walk around in dirty roads and you get all dirty. So here the master is washing people's feet. So he's taking this whole concept of master, uh, disciple, teacher, student, Leader, follower, and just turns the whole thing like he does everything, right? He turns over more than tables. He turns everything over. He's making an entirely new tradition. When Jesus approached Simon and Andrew, he said, Follow me. He was inviting them to come into his school, to be his students, to be his servants. <laughs> um, they, the, the people who he's calling have a pretty lucrative. Um, to own your own nets is, is a pretty big deal. To own a boat and a net. And to own a boat and a net and a servant. I mean, these guys are not just two dudes standing out on Lake Washington with a fishing pole. Right? This is a legitimate business that they have. And, and they're going to leave that to go follow this guy around and wash his feet. So that's fascinating. It's fascinating to me how they respond to him. Because what, what is Jesus offering them? He doesn't come with some sort of contract full of guaranteed money he's not coming to them with a business proposal that sounds better than what they're doing. They've already gotten used to the smell of fish. It's not like he's offering them something that sounds better than what they're already doing. The Christian faith was referred to as the way. This, this is a play on this whole kind of discipleship process that Jesus has. It's called the way. It was a course of imitation involving the whole person, not just learning, but learning and behavior. There's a way of life that Jesus is talking about here. There's a way of life that he's teaching them. It's not just doctrines, and it's not just social action. It's doctrines and it's social action. It has to do with how you eat food and who you eat it with. What kinds of food you eat and how you eat it and who you eat it with. Acts 24:14 through 15 says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So the Apostle Paul is referring to this new Christianity, which didn't have that name yet, as the way. Some people call it a sect. What I call it is the tradition of our fathers. So he's referring to the Jewish religion as he understands it. It's interesting how the different names for Christianity have come along. I like the way. I like that. We should bring that back. And not in one of those new agey ways where we have a weird church where we call it the way church but the, you, we have to understand what this phrase the way means in, in, in the way Jesus taught it John fourteen six. Jesus said to him I am the way I am the way so this sect this religion this tradition of the fathers that Paul is teaching everyone is Jesus that's his religion is Jesus how do I, I and what do we see actually do it. Paul's traveling around. He doesn't have a set home. He's got scrolls over here that he needs somebody to bring him. He's left a cloak over here that somebody's got to bring him, if you read the epistles. He's kind of spread all over the place. And what he is, is he's a fisher of men. He's out there doing the work that Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. And he refers to what he's doing as the way, which is Jesus. He's living an imitative life. The first disciples showed the ideal response to the command of Jesus. It should be immediate. Uh, that's uh, something we say in our house when, to the kids. You know, you, you, you do what I say all the way, right away, and cheerfully. Um, I, I feel always there's always a bit of a smirk right in the corner of my mouth when I say that because I know that's how I'm supposed to be and I know that I'm not. But I still have to say it because I'm their dad and do as I say, not as I do. No, wait. <laughs> I, just delete that from the record, there, Jared. They 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 don't ask questions. Nobody says where are we going. Nobody says what are we going to do. Nobody says who are you. They get up and they follow him. That's what God wants. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. But but how? What does that mean? Right. If, well, if you followed him, if you understood him, if you watched him, you would know. Right? Don't, don't get up and do. That, that's what he wants. He doesn't want you to linger. He doesn't want you to look back. He doesn't want you to hang back. When he says to do something, he means do it now. Now, there is a spiritual element to all of this. There is a rea- the reality behind the reality, as I said last week. John 10.27 says, His sheep hear his voice. I know them, and they follow me. So how did these, right, what is going on? How did these guys just stand up and follow him? It's because they recognize in their heart of hearts who he is. Now, we go on to see in the Gospels, it takes them a little while to really figure it out, so they know, but they don't quite know, just like us. (laughs) We know who he is, but we don't really act like we know all the way, right? I mean, how often are we just like, oh, I'm going to get up from my net and just go and do what he told me to do? We know who he is, but we don't, right? There's a little confusion there. There's a disconnect. These are the sheep of God. They are responding to him because God, the Father, has put them into Jesus' hands. And so he's going around um, more like a a man with just a fishing pole, just catching one fish at a time. Oh, there's one. There's one. And he's gathering them in. Mark is showing the inseparable relationship between discipleship and Christology. We follow the way, and the way is a person. The way is a person. It's not a list of doctrines. It's not a list of social actions. It's a person that we're following. And Mark shows that Jesus takes the initiative uh, to making disciples. Again, he's not gently knocking on anyone's heart. He's he's not coming like a a gentle summer breeze. Hey! Hey! Right? He's not in a comparative religion class giving you all the options and saying, I, you can check the box next to Jesus if you want, which is so often how modern evangelism is. He says, get up, or he doesn't even say, he just says, follow me. And whatever you got to do to do that, that's what you do. The words, come follow me, are an authoritative tone. It is a command, and the four men react as though they had been issue, issued orders by a superior officer. The idea of Christian discipleship is responding to a summons, attachment to a person, acceptance of authority, an imitation of example. A radical announcement requires a radical and a complete response. All prior claims on a person lose their urgency. This text, in various ways, is typical of the rest of this gospel as its its teaching of discipleship goes. The rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me. Follow me," he says. And one guy says, "Well, I got to bury the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. And I've brought you into life now. Your old dead family and the dead system. Let them take care of it themselves. Get up and follow me. That's what he's calling them to. It, it's just like um Peter knows all about this. It's just like walking on the water. Jesus doesn't command him to walk on water. Jesus commands him to come to me, and and then he makes it so that Peter can do to follow his command. He says, "Peter, follow me," and Peter is like, "Okay, I don't know how that's going to work, but you said to do it, and so I'm going to do it." And he walks on water. There, there is no discussion about how am I going to do this impossible thing that you're asking of me. Mary asks, "What you're going to, what God is going to do by impregnating a virgin?" But the way she asks it is, "Oh my goodness, you're going to do that? That, that is unbelievable. You're going to do that? Tell me how." Whereas John the Baptist dad is more like, yeah, that sounds impossible. See, so, wow, that's amazing. I can't, I, what do you, how are you going to do that is different than, that seems impossible, and how are you going to do that? There's a subtlety there that sometimes confuses me a great deal. But I think it's an important distinction. I'm standing on this board, it's really uncomfortable. Now, if God tells you to do something, and it is beyond your reasoning to comprehend how you're going to fulfill it, getting down on your knees and saying, this is amazing, how am I going to do this, is the should be the response. Or you just get up and do it. right? In the Gospel of Mark, nobody is asking questions. It's, it's amazing. They just get up and obey. Now, to interpret the phrase, I will make you fishers of men, as merely a play on words appropriate to the situation, is to fail to appreciate the biblical background of the phrase. Jesus calls four Jewish men, two sets of brothers. He is rebuilding a new family from an old family. He is forming a new Israel out of the old Israel. He calls two sets of Jewish brothers. So he's saying, enough of that family, I'm making a new family. Enough of that way, we're making a new way. Old Israel, new Israel. Old family, new family. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Now, and that is a phrase that's loaded. Ezekiel 29, 4 through 5. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness. You, wilderness? Has that? That seems to be a theme for Mark. I'm sorry, I digress. But there that wilderness is again. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens, I give you as food. Now, what I find fascinating here is this place into the misunderstanding that most of Judaism had about what kind of Messiah they were expecting. Hey, guys, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And there's Peter like, all right, baby. We're going to gather us up some Romans. We're going to hurl them into the wilderness. It's going to be amazing. It's judgment time. Where's my sword? Remember, Peter wants to be the general. He's the guy that's just got the sword. He's ready to chop off ears. He's ready to go to work. (laughs) Show me the unbelievers. Because in, in, in the Old Testament, this idea of God fishing people is one of judgment. Now, what they, they fail to comprehend is what kind of God that they are dealing with. In what was read for us today, St. Paul said he was judged. He was judged by God. And yet, there he is, an apostle to the Gentiles. But I thought judgment was always bad. Interesting. Well, if you're judged, and the only mediator is Jesus Christ, and he's your mediator, you're in him, then that judgment is going to go very well for you. Sometimes we avoid the judgment of God and because we completely misunderstand what kind of God is behind the judgment. We think judgment is always terrible. We think judgment is always wicked, like wicked for us. That's going to go very badly for me. Well, if you're judged in in just on your own merits, yeah, that's not going to go well. But if you've already come out to the wilderness, if you've already attested to the fact you have nothing and are nothing apart from Jesus Christ, then the judgment that's going to come to you is going to be in Jesus Christ, and it's going to go very well for you. Jeremiah sixteen sixteen through 18. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill. And out of the clefts of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Let's go gather up all those fish and bring them in here so that God can deal with them, God can judge them. And the judgment that nobody is looking for is the judgment he pours out on his own son to make those fish his children. Jesus has come and he has turned everything on its head. What, what was nothing but terror, nothing but brokenness, nothing but judgment of God. Think about what that is, to fall into the hands of an angry God. And every no, nobody wants that for Israel. Nobody wants Israel to be judged. We want the world to, to be judged. But it's the trial by fire. It, it, it's the judgment that God gives to his son so that in his son you receive his grace. This is the judgment that he's talking about. Nobody wants this to happen. Well, not for themselves. They, they want it to happen for others because the, the, they're relying, the Jews, on all kinds of other things that justify them besides God. But the just shall live by faith. And, 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 and St. Paul says it. I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. God judges me. Let that be the case. Because if you have a compassionate God, you embrace that. Now, how many of us get on our knees in the morning and say, Yes, God, judge me. Judge me. If you are confident that you are in Christ, if you are confident that your only goodness is Christ, that he is your mediator, you will say that with all the confidence and faith in the world. Judge me. You will read the Psalms and they will become yours. I am righteous. I am perfect. I am without sin. Judge me, O God. Does anybody else read those Psalms for themselves and think, I'm going to skip these. Because I know that this is not talking about me. I would never, ever, on my own think, you know what I want is God to judge me. But that judgment is where the intersection happens between the mercy of god and the justice of god all that judgment that's coming you think it's coming down on you like a train it's going to just mow you over and jesus steps in the way and takes the hit he comes down on the train tracks he sees he tied there he unties he ties himself and says have go go out and tell people what i've done because the trains coming for them too And then what you go is from death to life, from darkness to light. Jesus is a fisherman. There's this whole thing throughout it. In the Old Testament, when there's sacrifices, the the food that's burned becomes smoke. Well, the image of God going around the Old Testament is a pillar of smoke. And so when you burn a lamb, the smoke of God absorbs the smoke of the sacrifice, and it's as if God is eating. Peter Lightheart makes this point. And I love it. it. It's brilliant. But when you see Jesus eating, he's always eating fish. The thing that God is consuming now (laughs) into himself (laughs) isn't lambs and clean animals, but fish. There's so much symbolism. Why, Why do you think the first Christians had that little fish symbol as their symbol? They had been fished out of the abyss. They had been fished out of the darkness, and they were all about being fishers of men. Well, I thought God wants to come and judge the world because of what Adam did. Well, it says in the scriptures that Jesus came to save sinners, that he wants all sinners to be saved. And the only way that's going to happen is if they're judged in him. If you go and you say, listen, I've got nothing else. I I got nothing else. I'm here in the spiritual wilderness. I've got no comfort. I have no strength. I am a complete nobody. Please, Lord God, give me mercy. Give me your son. And in that moment, the judgment comes, and and what you find is not terror, but joy. What you find is grace. What you find is deliverance. Now, we're a lot like Old Testament Israel, where we want the judgment to come. Don't get us wrong. Where's the DNC having their convention next year? A little hellfire and brimstone. That'd be nice. But when Jesus brings the judgment, it's the judgment... In him. In the end, you will be cast into the outer darkness, not actually for your sins, but for rejecting his salvation. That's actually what gets you into hell. He says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe it. And a bunch of people say, I don't believe it. And I want no part of following him. And they're given what they want. God is very gracious. You want no part of this. You don't have to have any part of it. When we cast all of these, right, we're going to get the net, and we're going to bring all these fish in, and these fish are going to go out into the wilderness where they're going to get eaten by wild animals, and these fish I'm going to consume, and they're going to become a part of me. Think about that. The judgment that's coming for the world is whether or not you repented, believed, and followed Jesus. Did you or didn't you? Everybody is going to either the outer wilderness or becoming part of the living god we're his body after all right peter says that we're becoming we're we're share going to share his essence so what are you becoming are you becoming a fiend of hell or are you becoming something that looks divine which way are you going now i preach an entire sermon on discipleship being about what you're becoming and not what you're doing and and I and I didn't make I made a mistake there, but only because you can't possibly cover everything <laughs> in, in in a sermon series. Because most people think discipleship is about what you're doing. Do this, don't do that. Right? It's, a, it's a religion of no, don't don't smoke, don't drink, don't date girls that do, or whatever that stupid phrase is. Right? It's it's a it's a religion of I, I'm gonna have to deny myself the things I really want. Because in the end, what I really want is to go to heaven. And and this, C.S. Lewis says, like that's not virtue. That's not love. Self-denial for the sake of self-denial is nothing. Denying yourself something so that you give someone else something, right? I'm going to say no to this so I can say yes to this. That's actually Christian ethics. And what we do is we think the gospel is us going to heaven in the end. I'm gonna die and i want i don't I, I would like to go to a nice place because this place is horrible, and so the idea that it, <laughs> discipleship's about what we're becoming some angelic looking being that okay baby, let's sign up for that uh it, it, and then what we do is we sometimes want that that kind of heaven now, and so there there's some confusion there, but we largely just think it's all about what we're becoming in the end, but what does Jesus say he's going to make them become? angels? He's going to what? Make them what? Fishers of men. It's not after. It's now. In this particular case, he's not talking about what they're going to become in the end. He's talking about what he wants them to become while they're living. Now, and what is that? To eat, drink, and be merry? To have an easy, safe, selfish life? Go out and, and fish? for yourself, right? If it's like, you know what I'm going to do is, you guys were fishers on a small scale. Andrew, you you like your boat and your servant? I'm going to give you 50 boats and 50 servants. And a lot of Jews were like, yeah, that's the blessed life. Look at how rich that guy is. But no. No, the blessed life is leave everything and go and, and seek the salvation of mankind. What you're becoming if you follow Christ has everything to do with your neighbor. Everyone in this room is headed in one of two directions. Do you care much about that? Everyone that you meet outside of this, this room, right, at work, uh, on your soccer team kids, at your classmates, your, at the co-op, the people that are on the bus, the people that are in the grocery, everyone is headed in one of two directions. And, and, and the gospel isn't about getting out of this horrible place so that we get to go somewhere nice in the end. It's about going out and saving the lost. The, the series of events here is Jesus says the kingdom has come, repent and believe, and he immediately goes out and he, and he gets some guys together because the mission is saving the world. I, I remember it was, um, when I got married, there were a number of things that slowly had to, uh, get set aside. One of them was this uh, video game that I played, and I remember my wife is, is my wife is more amazing than I can describe. And one day I'm playing, and she goes, "You know, you're, you're sitting there pretending to take over the world when God wants you to actually take over the world." <laughs> it's one of the few times where it was all I needed to hear, right? Okay, well, I'm going to throw that out. <laughs> what God wants is, is the world to be saved. Do you? Now, now I, I agree. There's a whole lot of stuff I hope burns. But the, but that's me. I hate it. I don't hate the thing God hates. I don't love the thing God loves. When, when, when you want judgment, you want to talk about that, I'm all for that. Let's do it. Let's go get some Muslims. Let's go get some some of that ISIS group over there. Let's go drop some nukes on those people. Turn the whole place into glass. That's a phrase I used to say. Why are we messing around with the Middle East? Let's just turn the whole thing into glass. Right? Because you got a bunch of sand, you have the heat of a nuclear bomb. Everyone gets that reference. And, and and in our hearts, that's what we want judgment. Let's firebomb some. Abortion clinics was the idea they had in the eighties, but now we're not even that. It's not even that external. It's all internal. All the hate just lives right here in our hearts. If if you are not becoming someone who is concerned with what your neighbor is becoming, you're not a Christian. You're just not. You, you can have nice Bibles. You can come to church as much as you want. If you're not concerned with what your neighbor is becoming, it's the whole thing's a lie. the whole thing because this is the problem with the American church we like middle class respectability we like comfort, we like big checking accounts, we like nice colleges we want everything to work out just peachy keen what we don't want is to give up everything to follow some guy on some bizarre path in which we're concerned about a bunch of other people (laughs) right, Where, where are we going, what are we doing i'm not interested in that right and at what we know at this point is the uh, disciples who follow him initially are very confused about what it is they're going to go do right and i i thought i thought when i became a christian i'd never drink too much ever again i would never swear ever again i was like here we go baby healing bring that healing and, and then so then what happens I, you talk to so many christians they're exhausted you know why because they're on a treadmill turned all the way up to 12 on the speed, turned all the way up to 12 on the steepness, and they're just going as hard as they can because they're like, okay, well, something is not right. I'm still swearing, and I'm still drinking too much. I'm still doing this. I'm still doing that. So what I need is more steeper, faster, steeper, faster. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to just run beyond all my problems. The problem's the treadmill. The problem is you think your Christian life is about you. You think it's about earning a living. Now, let me go back for a second because there is a huge confusion here. Later on, I'm done with this, by the way, have been for a time. Later on, we find out that all of these family members that these guys leave, they actually go back into their homes later. And it's because those things have been redeemed to Peter and to Andrew because they, too, have become believers. So it's not like God just says, hey, you know, abandon your entire everything. Don't ever talk to those people again. Don't ever go back to your mom's house, your dad's house. Uh, you don't. Be- I didn't become a Christian and get up and quit my job in five minutes. Right? It's not exactly how it works for everybody. Um, sometimes God asks you to give up things for a time and then gives them back to you. Uh, I, I don't have prodigal children. I, my kids are still little. Uh, I come from a very strange home where I had prodigal parents. (laughs) And there was a time where I didn't talk to them because I didn't really know what to say. But I had to be willing to do it. And what I I gained back more than I possibly thought I could have laid down. And this is what Jesus wants. C.S. Lewis said it. You can think too much of your own glory. You can think too much of your own salvation, but you cannot think too much of the glory and salvation of your neighbor. The weight of that glory and salvation that, that is your neighbor's is so heavy, only the humble can carry it because it breaks the back of the proud. Everyone you know is becoming an occupant of hell or an occupant of heaven, and you are supposed to guide them towards heaven you you should be all about the salvation the well-being the judgment of your neighbor and there's only one one mediator there's only one salvation there's only one ark and his name is jesus the way to get to heaven is by following him and which way does he go does he go the easy way does he go like elijah where it just he just puff he's gone he's up in heaven before the crown com- comes the cross. Before the crown comes the cross. Do you want glory? You, is that is that what you're after? You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. Because when you go after your own glory, what you're going to have is death and destruction. Christ come, c- comes and offers himself, which is greater than any glory that you can have in, in this world or the next. Now, if you want him, what you will find is that is the way to the cross and after it he gives you a crown after it are you a fisher of men are you concerned about the well the spiritual welfare the salvation the glory of the person sitting next to you here at on the bus and at work if you're not you're just living a lie What you're becoming is not what happens to you in the end. It's what you're becoming here in this life. And if you're concerned about anything other than the mission of God, which is the salvation of the world, then it's all a joke. All of this series is led up to this. You go out to the wilderness. Give it all up. Push everything out of the way. Get everything out of the way so that you can go out to the wilderness. I don't have any other comfort, I have no no other sustenance, I have no other good, I'm nothing except for Jesus. And then once you get out there, and you see that he's already defeated the enemies, he's already taken care of all the sin, you, you go out there for judgment, and you realize that in him you're judged to be a beloved son of the living God. The next question is, well, what do we do now? The first sermon that Peter ever preached, the end of it, they said, okay, what do we do? And what you do is you go fish. You go cast the net. Your mouth should not be full of questions. You simply obey. If you're confused about what, what you're obeying, read your Bible. If you don't feel like you have the strength and power to do it, pray by the Holy Spirit to the living God. But the Christian life is that. People living in the wilderness fishing. And if you're doing anything else, it's not Christianity. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your mercy. You are a far more compassionate God than we understand. Uh, Where do we go from here, Father? You know every person in this room. You know exactly what they need to repent of. You know exactly what comfort they need in their hearts. I pray, Lord God, for anyone here who is on the fence that they would get off. Anyone here who is looking back, that they would turn their head, uh, set their face towards Jerusalem and not look back. You said repent and believe and follow you. Father, this is our opportunity again. You do not grow weary in it. If we have strayed, if we have lived a lie, we pray, Lord, that you would fill our mouths with cries of mercy, that you would fill our hearts with repentance, that you would teach us, and instruct us and strengthen us to follow your son wherever he may lead. We know that tomorrow morning is a Monday, and we know we know that the cross comes before the crown, and we pray, Lord, that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us to go, and as we staple and as we fax and as we make phone calls and as we drive our cars and make dinner and help the kids with the homework, Lord, that we would in all things, in word and deed, be casting nets for the glory of your son. Amen.